And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Sitting across from me today is my longtime WGTD uh, colleague, uh, News Director Dave McGrath, uh, in the guest chair today, the hot seat as it will, to talk about uh, his first novel, a novel called 24 Hours from Tulsa. And uh, this novel, like uh, a nonfiction book that, uh, that Dave McGrath also wrote, stems from the many years that he and his wife, uh, Guida, worked very closely with the uh, very, very popular singer, Gene Pitney. And indeed, Gene Pitney figures prominently in this novel, which in some respects is, is fictional. I mean, it's, it's a novel, it's fictional, but there are, uh, it is uh, peppered with a, a number of familiar names, and Gene Pitney figures very much at the heart of this story of, of uh, his uh, loving and skillful intervention uh, in the careers of two up-and-coming uh, superstars in the making. And uh, it's a really interesting look at kind of the way in the w- which the, the pop music world functions, or at least functioned, back in the 1960s, which is when this novel is set. So we're going to spend today's morning show talking with Dave McGrath uh, about uh, his connection with Gene Pitney, about what prompted him to write this novel. And uh, we'll dig into it on all kinds of different levels. The book, by the way, is published by Waterside Productions. Again, it's titled 24 Hours from Tulsa. And Gene Pitney fans will recognize that as the title of one of his biggest hits. Dave McGrath, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks for having me on here, Greg. It's always good to be with you when when you're not yelling at me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to try to remain cordial today as as best I can. So, let's get one kind of slightly confusing matter out of the way. Um you were telling me that that actually this novel which j- was just published actually uh began you began work on it before you began work on your other Gene Pitney book which was published first. Kind of take us through that complicated timeline. So that's why I brought all these notes in, because I did write this book, 24 Hours from Tulsa. I started it about five or six years ago. I was uh, volunteering at Guida's agency, my wife, Guida Brown. She, at that point, was executive director of the Hope Council on Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse. And they got a grant, I believe, to do a program to help uh, people coming out of prison put together resumes to help them get jobs. Hmm. And she asked me if I would volunteer, and I said yes. So that was uh, during the summer. I want to say five years ago. It might have been six. And we live, our house is only about two miles from Guida's agency. So I would walk down there during the day and with my earbuds on. And as I was uh, walking down one day, uh, the song came on my earbuds. And the, the, opening, the opening verse to the song goes like this. Dearest, darling, I had to write to say that I won't be home anymore because something happened to me while I was driving home. And I'm not the same anymore. So now, this is a song, Greg. By the way, this year, this song is 60 years old. Mm. It came out in October of 1963. But I never really paid that close attention to the, to the lyrics, you know, per se, the story that Hal David wrote. They got to thinking, so who was this guy? Where was he? What was he doing? Who is he writing home to? And why isn't he going home? So simply, Greg, as a lark, because I had some downtime while I was waiting for people to come in to help with resumes— just as a lark, because I have no idea at that point, and probably not much more of an idea now, how to write a novel. I thought I'd just, for my own pleasure, 
write a little short story and create the backstory. Who was this guy? What was he doing? Where was he going? Who did he meet? What happened? Mm. Et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it came about. And because I can, I've never had writer's block in my life, but because uh, when I get to a keyboard and the, the ideas just come rushing out of my head and I just type whatever comes out. And thankfully, my wife, Gwita Brown, is my editor and she hmm. cleans it all up so it actually looks like English is my first language. <laughs> <laughs> so quickly, I'd say within two weeks, I had 80,000 words. Wow. Yeah. That's and, quite a short story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of, kind of blew up on me. And then I put it away for a while, I guess just because. And then one day, as you know, I'm a distance runner. One day I was out running out at uh, Parkside, at their, uh, their, their trail that they use out there for their races. Uh, it, it, I reminded myself that because Gene Pitney and I worked together for 21, 22 years, and I owed him so much. He got me into the music business. He was patient with me. He taught me everything he knew, and he did it holding my hand and sometimes putting his hand over my mouth mm. so I didn't say the wrong thing to the wrong person. And uh, for those who don't know, Gene died in uh, 2006. But I just I felt I owed him this <clears throat> debt of gratitude <clears throat> for getting me into this business that I really, really loved. So I wanted a quality book about Gene in the marketplace with my name on it. And since at that point he'd been dead 10 years, maybe even a little bit longer, um, I felt uh, a biography wouldn't work. Hmm. So while I'm running this, this uh, distance run out of parks, I said, how are you going to do this, Dave? How are you going to make this work? And then again, I realized how David and Bert Bacharach wrote a lot of songs for him. Uh, Gene actually had the first hit record written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards from the Rolling Stone. Hmm. Uh, Carol King wrote songs for him. Then it dawned on me, bring all them into the arena. Then you're not just interesting Gene Pitney fans, but everybody knows who Burt Bacharach is. Everyone knows who the Rolling Stones are and Carole King. Bring them into the arena. And that sh should expand the audience. And then I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? Because I'm, as you can attest to, I'm not that smart. And I don't have um, that thought process where I can complete a thought or I can go dot to dot to dot, you know, forward. But it came to me, again, I think these are Godwinks. It came to me while I was running. Just do every chapter the same. One song per chapter. The format's the same. It starts out the same. It ends the same. Mm. And that's what it dawned on me. Why don't I bring his wife, Lynn Pitney, into it as well? Nobody knew Gene better than Lynn Pitney. And I'm always interested to see how, whether it's a movie star, TV star, singer, how their wives or children react to the work they do. Mm. Uh, and Lynn was very kind. She gave me, uh, I think we did three one-hour interviews. And because I knew her so well going in, I knew she didn't like all of Gene's songs. <laughs> mm. and, and she was perfectly honest and perfectly straightforward. And, you know, if I asked her to give me a comment on a song called She's a Heartbreaker, she said, oh, that was a stinker. <laughs> she didn't like that. So that all came together then. I knew how to write the book. I knew how to format the book. I knew to get Lynn Pitney involved. And then I had to chase after the uh, songwriters. I just knew that would be a little bit better angle to go at than an autobiography. Then, while I was doing that, I bought an autobiography by a, a guy named Jim Peterick. A lot of people may not know his name, but Jim started a group in Chicago in the 
60s called The Ides of March. They had a huge hit called Vehicle. But he went on to be a great songwriter. He wrote the theme to Rocky, wow. Eye of the Tiger. Wow. And he wrote a number of other hits for a lot of groups. He's a very famous songwriter, very gifted guy, very nice man. And I was a big fan, so I bought his autobiography. And within the first four pages, he mentions Gene Pitney. Hmm. So I figured, ah, he didn't. He wasn't involved with Gene's career, but this would be nice to get quotes from Jimmy Peterick about Gene Pitney to put in this book. And uh, we got talking. He was very generous with his time. He gave me all the information I needed. And that was that, I thought, until maybe a week later I said, hmm, hmm, maybe if I asked nicely, Jim would introduce me to his literary agent Hmm. to help me get a deal. Because he really... uh, you can self-publish and you can do it great. And it's, I didn't really want to go that route. Uh, so I, I sent Jim an email one day. I said, you don't have to tell him it's a good book. You don't have mm-hmm. to tell him you like me. <laughs> you can even tell him we've never mm-hmm. met. But would you just give me an introduction to your agent, who happened to be a guy named Bill Gladstone? And Jim did it in a heartbeat. Uh, Bill sent me an email. We uh, communicated back and forth. And we made the deal. And uh, Bill with Waterside gave me a very generous deal, uh, one, a deal I was very happy with because I, I really insisted on creative control for the cover and for the layout of that first book because it was very important to me how that book got laid out. Bill said, sure, go ahead. Have fun writing it. Get back to me when it's done. So that book came out. When I talked to myself about that book, I thought, you know, I'd love to sell 100 copies. I'd be thrilled if it sold 100 mm-hmm. copies. Bill Gladstone was saying, yeah, we need five or 600. That'd be great. Well, we sold more than that. And people always ask me, how many did you sell? And I, and I have to tell them, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know. I don't want to know because, A, if the number is too low, eh, then I'm disappointed. If it's too high, I don't want to get all look at me. But the other problem that comes into play now, and I don't know that it's necessarily a problem, uh, we sell hard copies. You sell so many e-books. Mm, right. So you don't, you know, so I sold an e-book. Nobody's actually got something to hold. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've never asked exactly how many copies, hardcover, softcover, or e-books that we sold. And I guess I really don't want to know. But it was, it did well enough that he uh, he wanted me to do a book about Dion, the same format, mm. Dion, the singer of the songs of songwriters, which if uh, Bill and I can work out a better deal, <laughs> because the first deal, it's kind of like in the NFL, it was my rookie deal. Yeah, right. <laughs> Felt good at the time. Yeah. So, and it was a generous deal, but I think I can do better with Bill. So that's in the works. And then as we were discussing that, he said, hey, by the way, because I had pitched both of these books to Bill in the beginning. The first book, The Singer, The Songs, The Songwriters. And I said, I also have this historical fiction piece that I'm almost done writing. And he wasn't interested in that book. He wasn't interested in 24 Hours from Tulsa. He said, no, give me the other one. I like that. And then when that was doing so well, and he pitched me, asked me to do Dion, then he said, do you have that other book yet, that historical fiction piece? And I said, yes, I do. He says, is it finished? I said, eh, I'd like to add a few more chapters, then it'll be done. He said, let's do it. So that's how this book came about to be published second when it's actually written mostly first. Interesting. So let's uh, let's explain to our, our listeners kind of the essential backdrop of it, but I guess one of the things I want to get out of the way is kind of the mix between fact and fiction. The fact that Gene Pitney is in this novel 
and we see all kinds of other really familiar names, I'm pretty sure that the main couple, that is these two young up-and-coming singers, really great young people where you are rooting for them all the way, I'm pretty sure they are entirely fictional. Is that um, right? They are. Hal Douglas Hal, and Jesse, Jesse James, James are the yeah. are the two. Uh, but I just want want to want you to talk for a moment about that mix of people you have created with people who really exist. I mean, you know, famous singers, names like Dick Clark and so on that 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 we see. And how tricky was that for you to kind of meld the world of your own imagination with the world and careers and reality of people who really lived. Yeah. Uh, so you'll see in the beginning of my book, in any historical fiction piece, there's a disclaimer that kind of covers you on all that. And what I, what I wanted to do was l- almost all the characters in the book, not all of them, but almost all of them, are based on real people that I knew, knew personally, or that I knew of being in the music business, or that I've heard of. And then what I did to enhance the character and advance the character's arc and the storyline, then I would add traits, character traits to them that I needed uh, just just to advance the story and the character. So, and a lot of the people, a lot of my friends who have read the book say, hey, is so-and-so, is that based on... Mm. Uh, and I've declined to answer that question except for one person. I've got a character in their name, Teddy Griffin. He uh, runs a TV show, Teddy Griffin's Talent Jamboree or something, in my book. He's based on Arthur Godfrey. Ah. Arthur Godfrey, a lot of our listeners may be too young to remember, but a huge talent and huge success in radio and television in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. As gifted as he was, everything you read about Arthur Godfrey, they call him the old redhead. Um, and I've read two or three biographies on him, just a mean man, a mean-spirited man. Hmm. So Teddy Griffin is based on Arthur Godfrey. The other ones, um, again, based on real people, but sometimes very loosely. Right. But when we see references to real people, those are real people. I mean, so when it says Bob Hope, you're talking about Bob Hope and and, and so on. Um, So we have this, this... this young pair, a, a, a young guy, up-and-coming singer, and a, and a not-quite-as-young woman, up-and-coming singer. So that's the Hal Douglas and, and Jesse James. Now, uh, Hal Douglas, you have him coming from Milwaukee, right. a graduate of Mesmer High School, yes. and so on. <laughs> so talk for a moment about why he is based so close to home, and uh, that's your alma mater, right? Correct, it is. So... I mean, what's that about? Uh, so again, as I mentioned earlier, when I started this, I had no idea how to write a novel. And it, it, I learned a lot as I went. Uh, when I read books, my genre I prefer is World War II, uh, nonfiction and historical fiction. But when I just want a quick book to read on the airplane or something, uh, there's an author named Stuart Woods. And Stuart puts out like four or five books a year, hmm. murder mysteries and everything else. And I learned a lot how to write this book from Stuart Woods. So Hal Douglas, believe it or not, is is me without any of the talent that Hal has, <laughs> without any of the charisma that Hal has, without any of the abilities Hal has. Um, and I I took one quasi-writing class in high school, and that was it. 
Darlene Berg was the teacher. And so I really had no background in writing at all. But Darlene would always say, and I'm, I think this is one of the one of the foundations of writing, write what you know. Hmm. Write what you know. So it was easy for me to write about growing up in Milwaukee, going to Messmer High School, and being consumed by music in the 1960s, because that was me. Right. That was me. But then I had to give Hal all this talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, right off the bat, we read that he's he was the big man on campus. He's the quarterback of the football team, and and he acts in all the school plays, and he's good-looking and charming and sweet and so on. And, and beyond that, I mean, we just like him so much. I mean, you make him a thoroughly likable character in every single way. Now, I'm just curious about that choice because a lot of times when, when we write novels, uh, we make a given character maybe just a little more complicated than that, like they have a dark side or hidden weaknesses or whatever. Uh, but this is just such a praiseworthy young man in every single respect. I'm not quarreling with the choice. I mean, I mean, it, I find myself just rooting for him. Is that why you made him such a... I mean, such a beautiful figure in so many ways. I needed one. I needed one because Mm. the music business is, it's a snake pit. It really is. And you find uh, just a lot of unlikable people. You also find a lot of likable people. You know, when we're on the road with Dion and we're on the road with Gene, we had some great friends in his band. There were some very likable musicians, but a lot of uh, the musicians and the executives and the promotional people and the promoters and other people, sort of people involved with music, they're just not nice. They're just not nice. So I needed one person to be nice, mm. to be sort of that beacon of hope for the world. And then I needed to offset Jesse James a little bit because we needed uh, we needed a bad girl, a little bit of a bad girl. Now, Jesse's not really a bad girl, but she's, she's not... Yeah, she wouldn't play Mother Mary in the school play. Right. Well, she's certainly more complicated yeah. than Hal Douglas as as a as a figure, and she she has a mother who's an award winning actress, and a father who used to be the governor of California and comes from a very wealthy background, and and of course Hal Douglas is somebody who's coming from yeah from very very ordinary circumstances, and and in fact one of the things that's really interesting too is is uh, on top of it uh, there's issues with his dad. Is his dad a Kind of an alcoholic. He suffered from the disease of alcoholism, right. just like my father did. Right, and um, you you uh, write at one point when Hal had to hang out at the North Oak Inn Tavern to keep an eye on his dad. He would use his paper route money to buy orange soda and play the jukebox. He wanted and needed music around him all the time. It took him away from the desperate realities of his life. So. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, and I'm not the kind of guy that would just sit and talk to you about that but that is based on my life that was my dad he had a couple of he was a world war ii veteran you know he came out of the depression he goes into world war ii he gets shot in france he's got a horrible leg injury which affected his whole life and then he he suffered from alcoholism and then he had eight kids to support (laughs) (laughs) so uh, my dad frank and my mother rita are are mentioned in the book and um, he tried his best. You know, he failed so often, but he always tried his best. And um, I forgive him, my dad, for everything that happened in my life, and I hope people forgive me for the stupid things that I do or have done. 
But, uh, yeah, so that is based on my dad, and Rita's based on my mom. My mother, sweetest lady in the world. Mm. How she put up with my father and then had eight kids, six of them boys, is beyond me. But she did it, and she was great. <laughs> so that parallels your own family pretty yeah. closely as well then. How about Hal Douglas then as the singer? Because you've already said you know that that's where it, it parts with with the reality of who you are. I mean, he as an up and coming singer, you are not patterning him after you at all. Are you? Is he patterned after anybody from my, that? My era? dreams, what I would like to have done. Ah, okay. You so know? he's not he's not kind of a mirror image or a fictional no. version no. of of. Somebody who who really sang in the 1960s. Uh, I patterned him after what I would love to have, for, like your gift. I wish I had your gift of the music, the singing, and the the, the piano playing. But I, I just didn't have that gift. That wasn't either given to me or it was given to me, and I just didn't know how to how to uh, you know massage it to work. So Hal's Hal's life is patterned after what I would like my life to have turned ah, out to be. Interesting. Yeah. We're speaking with Dave McGrath about his novel 24 Hours from Tulsa. That title refers to one of Gene Pitney's biggest hits, but this is an entirely fictional work which uh, charts the rise of two young, super talented uh, young musicians, uh, Hal Douglas and and Jesse James, and uh, how Gene Pitney enters their lives and enters their careers in a really, really striking way. Before that happens, however, they are working with other people, other characters. And I suspect that uh, the character of, for instance, Ricky Starr, who is managing uh, Hal Douglas, uh, is patterned off of people who you knew, Mm -hmm. saw firsthand in the music business. Tell our listeners first just a little bit about Mr. Starr, as we meet him and, and get to know him in this book, and then how he w- is a reflection of a whole lot of people yeah. in this business. So a lot of people have come back to me and said, Rick Starr is Dick Clark, right? And I said, well, if that's what you want. <laughs> mm. uh, but a lot of his personality traits, um, I can talk about a friend of mine who's now dead, Dick Fox. Dick, uh, Dick made his money and his bones in the music business. He was Barry Manilow's agent. When he had enough money, he got out of that rat race, and he continued to do is promote a smaller, smaller things he wanted to do. Uh, so he was a baby boomer, so he ended up managing and promoting Dion and the, the uh, Golden Boys of Bandstand, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, and Fabian. Hmm. And he did a lot of that stuff. But uh, Dick was one of these guys, East Coast guys, gruff. First time you meet him, he scared you. Hmm. <laughs> but Gwyd and I came to love him. He has great sense of humor, uh, pretty much down to earth. And he just came across as tough because in that business you have to, otherwise you're going to get run over. And, uh, you know, we worked with a guy named Peter Noon for many years, Herman from Herman's Hermits. And through the course of the years with her, with Peter, we saw a lot of people try to take advantage of him, different booking agents and promoters. And so... Rick Starr is a conglomeration of all those people. Everything bad in the music industry is Rick Starr. Mm. Uh, you know, when, when people ask me if, if Rick is Dick Clark, that always reminds me, uh, when, when I was working with Gene back in the early 80s, mid-80s, this is long before the Internet and cell phones and everything, 
So in order to get tour dates out to fans, in order to get information out to fans, keep them engaged and sell them stuff, we ran the Gene Pitney International Fan Club. Right. And we put out quarterly newsletters. And I was able to secure a nice interview with Hal David at the time. Hal was always very accessible. Uh, his partner, Bird Backrack, not so much. But I, I remember I asked Hal about the song. I asked him for the story because he, he, he wrote the lyric. And it's a narrative story. It's not a moon, June, I love you, you love me story. It's a narrative. It's mm. almost like a country western song. Yeah. A story from start to finish. And I asked Hal, what's it about? And he said, you know what? The listener can make up whatever story would fit their imagination. And mm. so that's what I did with a lot of these characters. How would I, or how did I perceive these people I met in the industry? And again, sometimes you expand on it a little bit more. It's not always completely accurate. But whatever I needed, whatever eccentricity I needed to advance a story arc or just to make somebody laugh, there are some, and, and I must tell people, because it's set in the music industry in the 60s, I like to tell people there are naughty parts. <laughs> <laughs> but they're PG-13 naughty parts. And some of them, you know, some of them I just wrote and they made me laugh. So I figured if it makes me laugh, it might make somebody else laugh. But, yeah. There's another character who uh, figures in the book that is kind of a quasi-villain, I guess you could say, another another singer uh, older than uh, either Hal or or or, uh, or Jesse, and and this is Tony Winston. Now, this is somebody who uh, whose real name is Tony uh, Ranzuno, and he and his sisters are from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yeah. So, uh, tell us a little bit about this character, and also you know the fact that they're from Kenosha. Is that just, again, the, the writing what you know thing, or was there some other reason to fashion him the way you did? Yeah, so most of it's writing what you know, but I, I wanted an older character in there to play off these two rising stars, and we needed an older character whose career had peaked, had some valleys, peaked again, and some more valleys, because that was very easy and fun, and fun to write. And that's one of those things that made me laugh when I wrote it. So, uh, because... The fictional name, and there is Teddy Ranzuno, no, Tony Ranzuno. When they appeared on the Teddy Griffin Talent Jamboree, this was pretty close to early 50s, would have been pretty close to the end of World War II. And Teddy says, you know, we, we can't have an Italian name on there. Mm. Italy was not with the Allies, so right. you're going to have to change your name. And uh, at that time, you could advertise cigarettes on television, you know. And so Teddy wanted them to name themselves the Chesterfield Singers, whatever. And Oh, after the cigarette. Yeah, after yeah. the cigarette. And somebody said, no, because you might get another cigarette advertiser. So they came up with, I came up with, because uh, it's Winston Churchill, Tony Winston and the Churchill sisters. Mm. <laughs> that still makes me laugh. It's yeah. So, it's so corny. So, But he's a character that you could play off of because here's a guy who had, in my book, humongous success, horrible failures, tragedy, a second chance, and he, he's sort of uh, redemption. You know, he's, a, he's my character of redemption in the book. Yeah. So we've already talked about the fact that, that uh, into the careers, into the lives of these two young people enter Gene Pitney. And obviously you've already kind of spelled out uh, just how closely you knew him, how you and Guida worked with him for 
uh, many, many years. Uh, he is nearly as heroic a figure as, as young Hal, Hal Douglas is. Uh, so first of all, clearly you wrote this book and shaped this novel in a way in which we we see every good aspect of Gene Pitney and really don't see any of his failings or faults. I mean, it's, it feels like, and I think it's great, you've written this book where a fan of Gene Pitney will pick it up and love every word they read about him. Uh, can you just talk about that decision, yeah. and was that at all a tricky thing? It was, because I didn't, as in the first book, I didn't want to come off as a sycophant, you know, because uh, I was first a Gene Pitney fan. Later on, we became friends and business partners, I think, as you know. Right. So, um, and I got to tell you a funny story. After the first book came out, his wife, Lynn Pitney, was nice enough to do a book signing with me in Gene's hometown of Summers, Connecticut. And after the book, and she was hesitant at first, but I think once she did it and she saw all the people who showed up and just loved Gene, we went out to dinner afterwards, and that's when I told her, by the way, I've got this other book called 24 Hours from Tulsa Mm. that I'm doing. And she looked at me and she said, I don't think you should do that one. And I realized she was afraid that Gene was going to be the guy I wrote as heading home, meeting somebody at a motel or wherever, and blah, blah, blah. And when I assured her he wasn't, that he would be the the hero, she she was okay with it. Um, you know what? Gene was great. He he. We all have our. Not he. He didn't really have a dark side. Gene was. Gene knew where every penny of his money was, where every penny of it was coming from. Uh, the old saying is, Gene had his first communion money. <laughs> uh, but he was so smart, so shrewd. Early, early on in these Dick Clark tours, you know, Dick Clark had these Caravan of tar- Stars bus tours where these, these entertainers who had one hit, two hits, three hits, they do 60 shows in like 70 nights. Some nights you slept on the bus. Wow. But that's what the business was like then. And Gene, and I don't know where he, grew, where he learned all this because his, his father worked at Pratt & Whitney making airplane engines. His mm. mother was a stay-at-home mom. But some people are just born with that gift. And so on these tours, he'd, he'd be on tour with guys like Tony Orlando and mm. other people who became big stars. He taught them how to keep your receipts, expenses, Watch your money. Make sure everything is, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. If somebody tells you they're going to do this, make sure they do it. He knew that instinctively, and he helped. Bobby Vinton was on some of those tours. And so he, and all those guys I talked to said, that's what Gene taught us. Gene taught us the business end of show business. You know, we can all sing, but we didn't know what to do with our money. Right. Or make sure we got our money. So Gene was brilliant at that, and he taught me so much about music publishing and how to deal with promoters and how to deal with agents and how to deal with venues when you got there. Mm. And had he um, he, he had a, a saying that if he didn't want to do something, he would say, ah, I don't want that kind of drama in my life. Mm. So he could have done this. What I, what I depicted in the book, he could have done that. But it would have been too much drama for him. And he would not have done it in real life. To actually take on yeah. young artists yeah. and, and manage yeah. their careers and so on. Because I was going to ask you if that is patterned after every, anything he actually did. But what you're saying is he certainly could have done that. So one of the sort of abiding themes in that 
part of the story is that Gene Pitney does not want these two, let's call them youngsters, uh, to be uh, under the complete control of, for instance, Rick Starr in the case of Hal Douglas and and, and uh, the other guy. Don John Ross. Yeah, Don John Ross in the case of, of Jesse James. He wants them, with his assistance, to have much more autonomy over their own careers and over their own affairs. So... Is that something Gene Pitney managed yeah. to do? He was in charge of every yeah. aspect of his yeah. career, and that's quite distinct from yeah. what most singers did. So he uh, he did, in the early part of his career, he did those Dick Clark shows, those bus tours. And then he realized very quickly, I can do this. Hmm. I, I can line up these shows, and I can make the money. And so that's what he he learned from uh, he learned that from Dick Clark he learned how to make money on tours mm-hmm. and then Gene would eventually put out he had a Shower of Stars tour that he put out every year and he'd hire people like an up and coming Sonny and Cher and some other people that had one or two hits just so they had hits on the radio but they weren't too big yet you don't mm-hmm. want them to be big stars and their hands out you know right right so right, right. Uh, Gene very quickly learned how to make money on tours. He also learned all about publishing. And back in the day, when there were hard products you could hold, sheet music, records, that's where the money was, and in the publishing. And he learned that very quickly. And as opposed to just being a singer who, I'm going to make up a figure here, we're going to pay you $1,500 a week to do five shows for me. Gene learned, yeah, but... If I write songs and I own the publishing and I do the tours, my income is going to jump to $5,000 a week or something like that. And so with that knowledge, and, and Gene had talked to me about that all the time. So I had that knowledge in my head from him. I imparted that onto his character into the book to take control of your own career, you know, mm-hmm. be in charge of your own career, uh, learn how to do these things so you're not uh, – you're not under somebody's thumb. You're going to do this, this, and this. Gene, later on in his career, uh, he was always a huge star in England. And later on in his career, his booking agent would send him, and he'd tour once a year or once every 18 months. His booking agent would send him the tour dates. And England's not that big of a country. It's probably not much bigger than Wisconsin. But, you know, the tour agent would have him up in the northern part of the country on a Monday and middle of the country on Wednesday and back in the northern part on Friday. And Gene said, no, we're going to route this the way I want to do it. And so that's just another aspect and component of taking charge of your life, taking charge, plus with a singer, your voice. You don't run me all around the country. Let's do this in in a way that makes sense. And again, that's something that I imparted in the in the book and put into Gene's character, run your career yourself. You'll be much better off. Hmm. There are lots of wonderful little details, and one of them is, comes with wanting to put out this big record for the two youngsters. It's going to be a wonderful duet. I can't think of the title of the song. Lifetime of Love. Yeah, and is that a real song? Uh, there was a song called Lifetime okay. of Love, yeah. Uh, but that's not no, the song we're talking about. And uh, But I remember at some point when he's trying to get help uh, for what should go on the flip side he says something about and we don't want that flip side to be too big we don't want that to be too great of songs we don't want DJs going right to the B side when it's the A side that we want to garner all the attention again it's because he wants the right attention given to these young artists at this formative point in their career and that's such I never would have thought to think about 
what's on the B side matters well, in that it respect. Does, because back in the day when there again when there were forty fives, the song on the B side, whoever wrote that, got the same amount of money as the people on the A side because it sold X amount of records. And uh, Gene had that incident in his life. His, one of his biggest hits was Only Love Can Break a Heart, written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach. And Gene really didn't want to record it. The flip side was, I think, a song called If I Didn't Have a Dime. So when he went out to radio stations to promote it, he was promoting the flip side. He didn't mm. write either side. He just liked If I Didn't Have a Dime better. And... Uh, it became what's called a two-sided hit. Only Love Can Break a Heart actually went to number two on the Billboard charts. If I Didn't Have a Dime, stayed in the mid-30s, low-40s. So, again, that's just something that happened in his career. And in, in the music business in the 60s, it was equally important to get your song on the B side if you couldn't get the A side because the money was the same for the writers for the publishing. Right. One sort of sidelight of the novel that that intrigues me a little bit, and I think it's really interesting that it's there at all, is that we we learn a little bit not only about Rick Starr, this manager, uh, kind of an unsavory character as we've already touched on, but we also learn a little bit about his marriage to his wife Kim, and and uh, and the fact that because Rick Starr is so focused on making money and on his career. Uh, I mean, he is only as attentive to his wife and his daughters as he basically has to be. And at one point, you kind of have Kim Starr sort of saying to herself, you know, that's okay. I mean, there's something about that that makes my life easier. I mean, I can kind of go where I want to go, do what I want to do, and kind of made me realize, so maybe that's why so many people put up with that. I mean, especially in this glitzy, glamorous world uh, where – I mean, there, there, you at least get have a certain kind of freedom from that sort of inattentiveness from from your life partner. I thought that was a really intriguing sidelight to the story. Yeah, and I really don't know where I got that idea. I really don't. Um, but it did make sense to me to some degree, where she's got all the financial security in the world she wants. You know, like a lot of couples, you fall madly in love, and then sometimes it just sort of peters out. This way, she's got her beautiful home, she's got her children, she's got a nice lifestyle, and she doesn't have to put up with him. (laughs) (laughs) So she can go her own way, and and Rick Starr doesn't care either way what she does. Because he's got her, I paint her as a beautiful woman, a very lovely lady, and it seemed to be... um, it seemed to be a win-win for, for both characters. So. Yeah, really intriguing little yeah. sidelight to that to that story. So back to Gene Pitney, one of the things that's really interesting, you've, you've already kind of spelled out the ways in which Gene Pitney was exceptional, not only as an artist, I mean, as a wonderful singer who could really sell a song, but also someone who really ran his own career uh, very, very skillfully when it came to matters of finances and so on. And yet the impression you give us when we meet him, when, for instance, these two young singers first come to his house in Connecticut, is it? Yeah. Uh, you know, he doesn't live in some big gigantic mansion, nothing like you would expect somebody uh, of his artistic station or status. Um, so is that true to the Gene Pitney that you knew? I mean, did he make all this money and yet not care about money? Um, he did care about it. He made a lot of money. He wasn't always fond of spending it. And 
after he died in 2000. He lived in a rambling house in Summers, Connecticut. Uh, when, when he and Lynn bought it in 1967 or so, it was about you know, yay big. And then he added this this part of the house on, then he added another part of the house on. But I've, I've been in homes in Pleasant Prairie that are far bigger, far mm. more expansive, and far more beautiful than a home of, at that point, he was an international superstar. I mean, Gene was the Frank Sinatra of my generation. And mm. if you try to tell a kid about him, he is the Justin Bieber of, of their yeah. generation. He was huge. But he, he never bought into those trappings, you know. He drove an old beat-up pickup truck because, because he had dogs and he was always doing stuff with uh, lawn work and stuff. So while he had nice things, it was not really important to him to have extraordinarily expensive nice things. Hmm. There's an incident that occurs in the book that underscores a, uh, a facet of Gene Pitney's personality that I think you, you must value because you talk about it more than once, and that is his loyalty. Yeah. And that probably in a business in which loyalty is a fairly rare commodity, he was very, very loyal uh, to people who had been good to him you know, in one way or another. And, it, and in some ways, this young Hal Douglas has very much the same traits, and in some ways he seems like a Gene Pitney in the making. Right. Um, there's an incident in which uh, Gene Pitney gets into some trouble that is, I mean, he is physically threatened. It looks like a very, very scary situation. And he is helped out of that situation and repays that kindness uh, a couple of years later. I don't know how specifically you want to get into that, but it's a fascinating little moment in the novel. And I wonder if it has any basis in in uh, reality. So it happened in Huntsville, Alabama. It was based on a story when I was in the Army there. Something very similar to that happened, but it did not involve Cerner's. Ah. But I needed to uh, – so Johnny Tillotson is the man who comes to his rescue at that point. And Johnny was a singer in the 60s who had a bunch of big hit records, poetry in motion. It keeps right on a hurting. And I wanted – because Gene was loyal to a fault. I mean, sometimes he kept people around him who <laughs> were a real drag on his career. Uh, so I wanted to show that that component of his uh, of his, his personality. And so I wanted to bring Johnny Tillotson in so Johnny could write the B-side of that song and cash in on it. And But I was very tempted to leave that chapter out because it's it's a racially motivated incident that happens. Right, and, in and which, uh, if we can... I wasn't you sure mind. about it. I asked a number of people to read it, let me know if you think it's okay, and they all said, yeah, go with it. So So I left it in. Right. So you mind if I say, yeah. d- so Gene Pitney has befriended a, a black woman, yeah. and they're walking around in Huntsville, Alabama, and some... some Thugs. Yeah, you know, come up and don't like this white guy hanging out right. with a black woman and so on. And, and and as I said, this intervention occurs, I mean, or who knows what might have happened. Um, so this never happened to Gene Pitney, but in a sense, could it have happened to Gene Pitney? I mean, was did he have that? sort of openness where he would have, without a thought, giving it a thought, befriended a, a, a black oh, sure. artist and uh, so, so on. on some of these tours, uh, there were always, uh, like the Ronettes were on the tours and uh, the Supremes, hmm. and he and Mary Wilson struck up a great friendship. Huh. And it was never romantic, because uh, Gene was married at the time and married a beautiful woman, Lynn Pitney. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> is she beautiful. Um, but, yeah, and Gene, I don't know that Gene would actually go for a walk. He might have back in when he was early. 
in the early years. But um, he made friends, not many, but if you were his friend, you were his friend forever. Hmm. And he and Mary Wilson were tight up until the day she died, you know, in that car accident. One last thing. Um, There's a point where it's time to get this big record made by these two uh, young artists. And, oh, no, I'm not going to find it. But uh, as they are kind of sitting down with Gene Pitney, Gene Pitney basically says there are five options in terms of who's going to pay for this, who's going to pay for these sessions and I, I don't remember now but it's like I could pay for them or you could pay for them or we could pay for them or Rick Starr could pay for them or I forget <laughs> what all these different options are but you know it's so fascinating to think about those kind of really important decisions and and boy the tempting the tempting option might be let's have somebody else pay for this versus if I pay for this then I own this and just I feel I love that moment because it kind of crystallizes the complexity of 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 the decisions that confront a, a young artist, especially one that's trying to take control of their own affairs. And, and, and that point, again, back in the 60s, these were young kids. They had no idea that their careers could go on beyond two-hit records. So they weren't even thinking of that stuff. To them, they wanted to get on American Bandstand. They wanted to meet the girls. They wanted to go out and have fun. Never ever gave a thought to the business end of it. And a lot of them paid a dear price for that. You know, right. Didn't make didn't make the kind of money that Gene Pitney ended up making. Sure. And, of course, at the end, uh, among other things, this is also a story about stars rising and falling and glowing and fading. And even Gene Pitney, yeah. for as great as he was at this point when the novel is taking place, he's not quite the star that he was. And there's a moment, very poignant moment, where he hears a wonderful song on the radio and he realizes that song never got pitched to him. And probably four or five years earlier, that's a that, true story. That would have uh, been a Gene Pitney song. Frankie Lane had a, a midsize hit with a song called Making Memories. Beautiful, a great song, great melody. And Gene told me, he was sitting in his office one day, and that's my. Why didn't I get that song? <laughs> right. Because at that point, he, you know, he was on the downside of his career, and they weren't pitching songs to him anymore. Right. And even on this big tour with all the different artists, as Hal Douglas rises to be, I suppose you'd be like if you're the climactic act at the end of the night, that means somebody else who was in that spot gets slid down. And yeah. it, in that respect, it's kind of a ruthless business. And uh, that's part of what this story is as well, is yeah. and how to survive that. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually, that, that happens so often in those 1960s tours, especially the Supremes. Boom, boom, boom. First they're fourth on the bill, then they're third on the bill, pretty soon they're headliners on those things because they had those songs coming out so fast and such big hits. Mm. Well, it's a great novel. I felt like I just not only enjoyed it, but also learned a whole lot about this whole world and this whole business that, uh, that of course, you, to some extent, saw up, up close, uh, and uh, thanks to your friendship with Gene Pitney. Uh, the novel, again, is called 24 Hours from Tulsa, and it's published by Waterside Productions. Are there going to be any more novels from uh, well, Dave McGrath? We're going to see what me and Bill Gladstone can work out here. <laughs> <laughs> see, by the way, you can get the book in Kenosha at uh, Blue House Books downtown, Studio Moonfall, and online Amazon.com. Very good. And in the meantime, we'll watch for the Dion book. Thank Hope you. that that takes shape at some point. Dave McGrath, thank you for joining me today. This was really fun. Thanks. Thanks, Greg.